0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this month's UK Roundtable, we discuss why international investors are currently flocking to UK opportunities in spite of the many near-term challenges faced by the economy. With Phil Atreid, Head of Wealth Specialists, Michael Hartig, Head of Specialist Teams Business Banking, Stephen Peters, Senior Portfolio Manager, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. If you are new to investing, want to learn more about investing, or want tips on how to manage your long-term financial plans, check out our sister podcast channel, Money Plan, available on Apple, Spotify and SoundCloud.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. I'm Phil Attreed, Barclays Head of Wealth Specialists, and this week I'm excited to host one of our regular UK roundtable discussions. So, bringing together several of our experts in different fields to scrutinise various aspects of the UK, so from the political to economic and much in between. I'm delighted to be able to welcome back Michael Hartig from our business bank, Stephen Peters, fund manager, and the ever-present Will Hobbs, our chief investment officer, to share their thoughts. Will, as usual, we'll start with you to provide some context. And I guess the first piece to cover off is actually well beyond these shores on Ukraine's border. So what's the latest there?
2: Uh, Phil, hello everybody. Lovely to to have you all on again. Um, I would obviously, Phil, reiterate uh, for the umpteenth time, and I'm sorry you'll be getting bored of this in particular, but Mm -hmm. beware armchair generals. Uh, Particularly in this industry, it seems only weeks ago that uh, uh, many of the same talking heads were moonlighting as armchair epidemiologists. Um, When the main protagonists themselves don't know what comes next, beware those who would authoritatively second-guess them. Nonetheless, anyway. With that out of the way, um, experts, genuine experts, are suggesting that there remains hope of avoiding all-out conflict um, and the various kind of non-military reprisals uh, promised by Europe and the US. Um, The last 24 hours have seen investors apparently raise the probability of a more benign outcome a little bit, so bond yields have risen and stock markets too. Um, However, the second beware is, uh, you know, markets don't always behave how you think around this stuff um, because this kind of stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum uh, and much of what you see uh, in, in in prices is kind of adjustments to already embedded expectations, if you think about it, along that kind of efficient market hypothesis thing. So my old boss and mentor was always fond of pointing out that the US stock market, the S&P 500, actually rose 3% between the invasion of Kuwait in August 1990 and the um, Allied victory uh, you want to call it, the following February. Conversely, the same index fell 1% between the start of the second Gulf War in March 2003 and the fall of Baghdad less than a month later. So, you know, history is, you know, gives very few clues. Um, We can say from an investor perspective that our multi-asset class portfolios and funds are well set up. You know, the diversified commodity exposures um, proved particularly helpful already this year as they did last year. Again, you know, proving the worth of all that effort you know the various teams. Uh, you know Stephen's team, and uh, you know the asset allocation team to put into diversification. Um, like I say, across the various teams.
1: Great. And touching on that commodity point, Stephen, does that maybe explain why the UK stock market, so the FTSE 100, seems to be doing relatively well this year? And most obviously, I suppose the FTSE has quite a lot of energy and commodity companies in its makeup
3: yeah it does hi everybody um yeah uh, the en- energy is a, is a, is about 9% of the total value of the uk market at the moment, and it, alongside some of the other uh, kind of more cyclical, less ESG-friendly sectors like materials and maybe even, you know, the big banks, um, they're, they're the ones leading the way. Um, I, and I think it's interesting that um, oil profits, I mean, it's still a very profitable um, bit of the market for the big oil majors, and, and um, BP actually called them resilient hydrocarbons in their most recent annual report. Um, and where's all that money going all from that those resilient hydrocarbons? Well, it's going into funding green tech the big expenditure by BP and others into funding, you know, the the electric car charging points you're seeing down your local supermarket now now, or in your local um, petrol station.
1: And, uh, you know, we still need all of that energy for batteries to dig out the cobalt and the lithium, etc. Okay. And I mean, what about the value trade more generally? And by value, I mean, those companies trading at at sort of cheaper valuation metrics, so typically cheap, versus their profits or assets for reasons that might or might not be justified over the longer term. You know, the UK stock market seems to be one of the few that is actually set up to relatively benefit if central bankers actually push through with some of the rate rises that have been grabbing the headlines in the last few weeks. Yeah I no, absolutely agree and if you look as I said earlier if you look at the performance of the bank sector that absolutely supports uh, supports that view.
3: Um, all the managers or well, the UK equity managers I'm speaking to at the moment they're um, you know they're pretty sanguine they're saying that there's lots of excess savings built, uh, built up amongst the UK consumer which they're expecting to get um, spent on things like holidays um, you know not there's you no know, there's headroom before any interest rate rises really affect mortgage costs but um, but generally strangely overall the market's really cocking a snook at that that view um, instead the you know the markets uh, what's going up and airlines and cinemas you know things that have done really badly in the last Six, 12, 18 months. Um, and what's doing really, uh, uh, what's, they're, they're doing really well um, now, having done really badly. And the things that are doing really badly now are the really kind of more expensive, medium and small cap companies that have been, you know, favorite in people's portfolios for many years now. Uh, and that's why, when the market's so dominated by financials and by oil and by materials, that um, the, you know, the FTSE 100 is doing so well this year compared to smaller and medium sized companies.
4: So, Stephen, just, just I guess the one thing I'm seeing is I'm seeing a great deal of interest almost from, almost from overseas buyers or, or actually certainly VCs um, in terms of investing in the UK. But, but also, I guess their backdrop, I guess we've got a very a vibrant and buoyant private equity market. So I guess if I look at 2021 in the context, it was the best year for private equity in the UK ever with 20, 26 billion um, of, of VC investments. We saw London actually ranked fourth in the, the global league table of places to invest, really. So it would be interesting to, to understand the perspective of that.
3: Uh, yeah, no, it's a really interesting point. Um, the, uh, it was definitely the story of 2021 in the markets. One, is it, Why is it? Um, the UK market's been so horrendously out of favour for so many years. It doesn't have any really tech, tech sector. Um, what it does have is a lot of companies that are not really in the crosshairs of the, um, the good ESG trade. Um, so there's lots of things in lots of UK companies that have become really out of favour with mainstream listed equity investors. They're seen as more difficult, so um, private equity comes along, snaps them up at attractive prices, um, they'll own, own them, hopefully improve them, and then in you know, four, five, six years' time, we'll sell them back to listed equity markets at far higher prices and valuations, which, um, which is an interesting uh, change in, in strategy. It does seem now that private equity are Kind of truly long-term investors and uh, listed equity managers—the ones that face uh, kind of reputational issues—instead, um, as I said, you know these these es good ESG names have become really really popular, really really highly priced, and then if any of them have an operational issue, they're seeming to just get sold, um, sold, and share prices just fall, and, that, and that's why active managers so far this year. Um, are finding it finding it a really difficult year to navigate. Um, uh, most portfolios are so full of these kind of um, highly valued mid and small cap growth names that
1: uh, they just don't have enough room in their portfolio for the things that are at least so far this year going up. Great, Stephen. And I guess that shows the importance of the due diligence that you and the team you know do day in, day out.
3: It does. What we definitely try to do is try and understand levels of conviction that fund managers have. What we don't want is them simply just buying the large names, the you know, the big index weights in their particular market. We want to find out that if they're investing client money in these names, they have a, a view, a differentiated view. Um, and equally, or when that view changes, or they've uh, you know they want they they're able to move on and find other ideas. It's really important they just don't get stale. Um, in big names, simply because they're big names in their particular
1: market it's good to have you doing that in the background um Stephen Forrest, and turning to you well next, my question is whether that should um be even more important, given the backdrop uh, that you know in terms of the macroeconomic environment that we 're heading into, namely one where interest rates could well be forced into more restrictive territory.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the theory, isn't it? You're seeing lots of central bank, uh, you know, fixed income chimps putting out notes entitled kind of, not in Kansas anymore or similar. Uh, you and I have discussed a long, for a long time, you know, how the pandemic and the policymaker response could have pushed us into a kind of new macroeconomic paradigm, one where, uh, you know, like you say, central bankers are a lot less friendly because they have to be. Now, interestingly, if you look at the way that investors are pricing the path of, um, Short-term interest rates in the UK, they are basically suggesting that central bankers, uh, UK and US to a certain extent, less so in the US, but uh, they're suggesting that central bankers will raise interest rates quite sharply, uh, but then have to cut them uh, as the economy kind of swoons. They basically have to raise too far. Uh, This is seen happening in the US in 2025 and and a bit sooner in in the UK. Now, for what it's worth, I think the latest speech from uh, Hugh Pill, the, the, the relatively new Bank of England economist, conveys... You know well some of the complexities of the moment for central bankers, for investors, all this is important as you know because, like you say, the direction of real interest rates, inflation-adjusted interest rates, seems to be currently playing Pied Piper uh, for the giant rotation that's happened um, so far uh, this year. The one that uh, you know Stephen was so you know eloquently describing just now, and and, and a bit before this year, out of the f- recently fashionable stuff and into some of the dustier um, corners. Now, as we've said before although the link between real interest rates and style rota- style rotation makes kind of intuitive sense from a kind of dura- cash flow duration, you know, the shape of these kind of corporates cash flows, at least, you know, some, it is not called switches as reliably as you might like historically. So just something to bear in mind.
1: Quite. And um, Michael, how are the businesses that you're speaking to today, day to day, you know, feeling about, you know, this quite different central bank posture this year? And to what extent, you know, should we all be worried that maybe the modern corporate community has been raised on an era of you know pretty low interest rates by all accounts?
4: Yeah, absolutely, Phil. And it's it's a really good um, it's a really good question. And I guess I suppose if I answer that question in the context of the UK SME, the clients that we're talking to, the 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 clients that are backbone and employ the vast majority of people up and down the country, I suppose there's a couple of, of interesting facts that we're seeing. We're seeing those clients that are already borrowers. In effect increasingly actually wanting to talk to the banks about trying to fix their rates they they acknowledge the fact that we are moving into a rate environment that's going to increase so if, if, you, if you are a borrower in that case you look to fix that but there's another thing that we also actually sort of see in essence which is a positive and that whilst there are some headwinds and some uncertainties out there and if it, we still see positive investment intentions and that's actually really important because i guess the uk economy and i'm sure you have talked about in previous podcast will on the basis there is a challenge in terms of of, of productivity so i'm hoping that the investment intentions will go to improve the uk productivity but the the as the headwind we face i guess to a certain extent is the fact that that quite a few of these businesses actually were very heavy users of, of the government lending schemes during the COVID phase so they took advantage of the government loan schemes and therefore actually on the basis they you know, they were able to trade through those periods of lockdown. And we've seen demand for debt actually cool significantly since um, the, the government loan schemes have come to an end. So, so for example, if we have now seen the eight consecutive month of, of the SME clients actually repaying more than they were borrowing. So, in effect, they, they, they geared up and are and now in the process of repaying that uh, quite aggressively. The only sector, interestingly enough, you touched on the energy sector earlier, that saw an increase in, in borrowing were those firms in the energy sector. So actually those firms actually increased their borrowing slightly, but um, the rest of the other of firms actually reduced their borrowing. Now, the sort of one interesting fact about the, the the UK SME economy is that they've, since 2012 almost, they've been a generator of liquidity. So um, almost every one pound in effect they, they borrow, in essence they deposit £2.17. So in effect, they've been generating liquidity, and I guess the, the question I've got in my mind is actually, in effect, how do they start to, to actually use some of their liquidity to, to invest in some of the, of the productivity gains that they'll need to implement um, in terms of the trading environment going forward?
2: Can I just say, thank you so much for mentioning, I've been banned from using the P word because there were many listeners begging me to stop talking about productivity, Sorry, so Will. boring, <laughs> they were getting about it, so it's so nice to hear you say it, so I don't get, you know, I didn't get the abuse, but no, I just to just just follow up, that was fascinating, and I, I was, my question I guess is really just about, you know, we've heard from, you know, the Bank of England, they've been pointing out quite unpopularly that there is a decision, kind of even a responsibility, for companies and consumers uh companies or consumers, to a certain extent that you know that you know they 've said that in order to, for this elongated hump in inflation that we 're seeing and we 've seen another data point this morning saying you know more inflation than expected to not become an even more durable problem, someone has to take a hit either wages or margins um it 's not a very popular trade off and obviously it wasn 't a very popular message from the from uh, you know the chairman of the Bank of England but do you hear much on that from the companies in your kind of um in your sphere?
4: Yeah, so well, it's interesting actually because obviously there's quite a bit of press and there's quite a bit of, of media attention just in terms of the real supply chain pressures and the, and the real inflation in supply chain. So our clients are, are bracing themselves for the increase in the energy costs, but also in effect, they're also actually in the process of trying to make sure they can secure supply. And so I think that those are those companies that are able to, to secure the raw material supply and are therefore able to pass those cost increases on to the, the the end user it's maybe more those 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 businesses that are selling in a discretionary world you know um, it could be the hospitality leisure sector where maybe it's more difficult to pass those those cost increases on but we're also seeing for example actually some of our clients actually stockpiling some inventory because it is it is harder to get hold of and, and certainly it's not unheard of in effect still to hear some of our clients are facing a fourfold increase in shipping costs from china um so to answer your question in effect at the moment, they are able to pass some of those cost increases on, um, and, and I guess that'll manifest itself ultimately in, in consumer inflation at the end of the, the chain. Yeah, fascinating,
2: fascinating. I mean, it's also why, you know, your point there. Interestingly, I think that's a you know big story in the U.S. about stockpiling as well, and people are wondering whether, actually, you know, it's still deflation we need to be worrying about further down the line as the economy sort of writes and uh, you know overcorrects. But oh yeah, and also by the way, I should have said not the not the. Uh, 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 the chairman of the Bank of England, the governor of the Bank of England. But no, thank
4: you, Michael. So, well, just the one thing I would add, I guess, in the context, the one thing that, I, you know, and I, and I might sound like a broken record, is that the the clients we speak to are incredibly resilient. In effect, they're used to some of these shocks and they adapt, really. So whilst, in effect, I flag some of those challenges, I would expect them to adapt and to, to find a business model that works for them, really. So that's the optimism in me that, you know, they can see the, the sunny side of, of of how our firms will adapt. <laughs> it's good to hear
1: certainly going to be a very interesting year ahead and lots more for for you guys, no doubt, to talk about on on these podcasts as as the year progresses. Um, Stephen, I'll leave it maybe for you to round off any final points that you'd maybe like to make for any would-be investors out there. I'm pretty sure uh, our regular listeners and I already know what Will would be saying. (laughs) Yes, I think, and and I'm going to just uh, reiterate
3: at will's point and it's it's a it's a plea as i'm gonna i'm gonna do it in a plea i guess rather than a a reminder it's um and that plea is that it's so tempting to believe that what happened in the past will continue to do so and to you know, write off a, a market or a style of investing or an asset class if it hasn't done well over a, you know, the last few years. Uh, and it's also really, really appealing to go and buy something that's just been given a really great write up in a Sunday newspaper. Um, but, you know, really to reiterate what Will does say all the time, which is be diversified um, because it's what we do. It's how we run our multi-manager funds. Um, We don't bet on one particular style or approach. Um, We own different managers with different styles, and and we we blend them to uh, diversify by size of company, by investment style, um, by investment philosophy. Um, So, you know, that's my that's my point. Be diversified. It doesn't guarantee great performance, of course, particularly in the uh, in the short term. But over any sensible investing time horizon, it does make. Total huge sense.
2: Oh, the message from this is that productivity and diversification rants sound much better coming from you guys than they did from <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. you lesson learned.
1: Great. Thank you very much, Stephen, Michael, and Will, for your insights today. Thank you also, as always, our listeners, for joining us. We'll be back next week with another edition.
0: All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.